I'm Corey Shockey, and this is Sound Strategic. Today we are talking with Bill Emmett, the chairman of the trustees of the IISS, and for 13 years he had been the editor-in-chief of The Economist. We talk about a G2 world in which neither the United States nor China are rule obeyers. We explore whether Putin or Xi Jinping is in greater control of their country. We talk about whether Japan is racist or sexist going forward, and uh, a wait in hopefulness in 2020, new leadership in Germany. I hope you'll listen. I am Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the IISS, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast to showcase the talent of this fabulous ball club. And today it is my pleasure to have with us Bill Emmett, the chairman of the trustees of the IISS and longtime friend of this organization. He was for 13 years the editor-in-chief of The Economist. He is an independent writer whose latest book, 2017, The Fate of the West, was the first shot fired on whether the liberal international order is under too much strain to be sustained. He's a visiting fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, a visiting professor at Shujitsu University, an advisor to the University of Tokyo. He writes columns for La Stampa, Nikkei Business, Menichi Shimbun Project Syndicate. Bill Emmett, thank you for coming to talk to us. It's thrilling and exciting to be here with you, <laughs> Let's Corey. start with the fate of the West. What do you think is going on? Can the liberal international order handle the strain of challenges from without and challenges from within? I believe the liberal international order can, indeed must, hold out, but clearly it is uh, looser and more under challenge than it was five years ago certainly more than 10 years ago, I think that everyone's playing for time currently because the two big challenges to the liberal international order are basically America and China. America from within, China from without, and then you have to add our own internal political volatility into several of our countries, of course, but we could withstand that if it wasn't for the fact that we're not entirely sure whether the constructor, the leader, of the liberal international order, the United States wants it anymore. And secondly, whether or not we might be replaced by essentially a G2 world in which we have two countries that are not, probably not best thought of as rival hegemons, but rather as two countries that basically think that they shouldn't be subject to any order at all except their own negotiations with one another. And the rest of us should just be followers, rule takers, spectators. And it's the emergence of that kind of competing set of narratives that I think pose the greatest challenge, particularly during this year, actually. So uh, we'll get to the why this year, but first I, I wanna unpick a little bit the notion about a G2 because I have not heard anyone else phrase it the way you just did, like that most of the narrative about uh, the international order changing is a narrative about the United States being supplanted by China, either by economic muscle and concomitant security influence, or by a willful neglect on the part of the United States. What you just said that I find so interesting is the notion that actually maybe the US and China have the same strategy, 
which is neither country, neither of these two great powers wants to be subject to any rules of order, which would mean that the United States position shifts strongly, but, but you have an order not with an emergent new set of rules, but middle powers trying to sustain extant rules of order and being pulled in, in or being uh, corroded by the two strongest powers in the order. Talk a little bit more about what that would look like for middle powers. Well, I think it would look worrying for middle powers. Uh, let's go back in history a little over the last uh, 30, 40 years. The Cold War was simple because we had two superpowers, but in particular you could choose sides. You could decide you were on the Western side, or a smaller number of countries could decide they were on the, on the Soviet side, and others shut themselves off and tried to be autarkies. End of the Cold War, we think we've basically got one superpower, the unipolar moment, as Cla Charles Krauthammer called it, uh, and uh, we think that mainly we're building a network of rules within which countries can emerge, uh, uh, but basically we try to defend the rules, but the U.S. is clearly the leader. If we come now, I think it's too soon to think of China wanting to or expecting to supplant the United States. That really is something highly futuristic. Let's think 50 years in hence, frankly, in historical terms. And I don't think even Chinese dreamers would, uh, would really believe in that. But what you can see emerging is in a world in which these two countries are so powerful that the views of other smaller countries start to matter a lot less. Uh, and that basically their relations with each other, for good or ill, are the first thing that matters. And our interests as Britain, as Australia, as Japan, as Brazil, become secondary. Or at best. Uh, and so that's really the worry for us middle powers, that we may just be ignored and become rule takers. Now, I think what we are trying to do and what we have to try to do is basically make ourselves indispensable to either of the big superpowers, say, you've got to talk to us. Uh, you've, got to, you've got to ask us. You might like us on your side in this particular negotiation with the other superpower, by the way. Uh, you might like us to deal with you, uh, the issue about intellectual property theft by China. Why didn't you call us? Uh, so does that presume that there has to be a high level of cooperation among middle powers to succeed? Or can you see a variable geometry where different issues have different potential and fluid allegiances? Are we returning to um, uh, a balance of power system in which middle powers have the possibility of being the balancer against both China and the US? I think as things stand, it's likely to mean um, a, 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 a variable geometry, I mean a complicated variable geometry, because all of us as countries are gonna need our strong bilateral relationship with both the US and China in different ways, no doubt, but in to both. But in addition to that, we're gonna want to be forming our our subject by subject alliances and understandings with networks of other countries. Um, I don't think that we can see it in balance of power terms. It can't be binary in that way. It's gonna be all of the above from all of our points of view. Uh, and therefore, I think that you have to do it on a on a subject by subject basis, 
uh, and, um, and, and prepare your discussions in advance. Make sure that you've spoken to Prime Minister Abe about uh, the French view on this and make sure that, uh, that where you, you, you've come to some kind of a, an understanding with one another in the hope that that then feeds into the bilateral conversations. That description suggests that even middle powers whose political DNA is similar to the United States, that is free societies, um, will have to uh, balance against the United States with China on some issues. What I take from that is that you don't think type of governance or type of society is dispositive to that kind of cooperation. Is that right? I think what we're learning under the Trump administration is that it's not enough. It may be desirable, but it isn't sufficient to answer the question. I think that's the main takeaway from these last uh, three years, uh, and certainly would be the takeaway if it turns into eight years of, of a Trump administration, uh, such that um, the type of government may dispose you to, to, to uh, talk more to the similar types of government where you think you may have a, co a continuity of relationship that can get beyond small, uh, beyond small things like elections that change governments, uh, but it probably isn't enough. And you cannot even rely upon another liberal democracy. So does that mean that the concept of the West itself is coming to an end? I think it means it's under danger depending on the way in which American politics and American thinking evolves. Uh, I can equally th imagine uh, that after this episode um, of, if you like, extreme unilateralism that, uh, that has been shown by, by the Trump administration, that a successor administration, whether Democrat or Republican, may decide that actually while being strong and quite forceful in defending America's interests is the right thing to do, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China, actually it's rather better, as was said in the past, to bring in some other countries who ha are like-minded yeah. and there might be a reforming of the West, in effect. So yeah. I think it's going to be a, a, a an experimental period mm -hmm. because none of us really can get a sense of the way American thinking is, going is, is moving. So one of the countries that it seems to me is hedging its bets and was the first Western country that I thought I saw begin to hedge its bets is South Korea. And that strikes me as a very smart choice for a country in a very exposed position. Um, how, how does the, does the problem of South Korea's security look to you? We too often focus on the problem of North Korean nuclear proliferation, but one of the main reasons we care about that is because we care about the security of South Korea. So, so I'd like just to center the, the focus of the conversation about North Korea's threat on South Korea, its range of choice, um, what middle powers might be able to do at a time when the United States is uniquely unreliable in this alliance relationship. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think if you look back at South Korea's behavior, perhaps over several years, which is through the Park presidency uh, uh, into the Moon, the current Moon presidency, you definitely see a, a strong shift towards a, a more collaborative relationship with China. 
you see, however, then um, a, a sort of initial belief that perhaps they could use the United States in their relation in their security interests with North Korea, and by acting as a broker to to uh, bring about the bilateral negotiations between uh, Kim Jong-un and, uh, and President Trump, hopefully in the interests of de-escalating the situation on the Korean Peninsula. But now I think that you can see that that, uh, from the po point of view of South Korean administration, that card is probably played and that actually the whole, that ex exercise has lost its, um, its value and now they're wondering what to do. And meanwhile, they've worsened relations considerably with Japan their most immediate neighbor. So I think that they're flailing about a little in security terms. Um, because you are an editor, I, I hold you to a very high standard of precision of use of language. Uh, and it sounded to me as you just said that, you blamed South Korea for the worsening of relationships, of relations with Japan. Was that a conscious choice or do you think, where do you put the balance of responsibility for the incredible deep freeze and friction in the relationship? If you had to assign proportions to Japan and South Korea and the US on that, how would you assign them? I, I was absolutely deliberate, uh, my choice of words in that case. The, my I words aren't always that. chosen uh, so <laughs> deliberately, but in that case they were. <laughs> I think that basically uh, taking a, a 50-year span, I'd put 70% uh, of the responsibility on Japan. But take a five-year span, or let's put it in a 10-year span, I think that it's South Korea's responsibility of the current worsening. Mm. Uh, why do I say that? Because I think that uh, there was a genuine attempt on both sides very belatedly uh, to achieve uh, a resolution of historical uh, resentments between the two countries under President Park. Uh, that uh, both the Abe administration and the Park administration genuinely tried to achieve a resolution, and this was simply um, reopened by the Moon Jae-in administration uh, in collaboration with, perhaps inadvertently, the South Korean courts, who also unraveled some of it. I don't know that piece of it. What did the courts do? The courts basically took uh, legal cases against uh, Japanese corporations for uh, ah. compensation for wartime forced labor that, in the Japanese point of view, had been resolved um, in under the, 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 the treaty of, I guess it's the San Francisco Peace Treaty, is it? Or ah, no, maybe there was okay. a subsequent bilateral treaty, I forget the detail. But meanwhile, President Moon basically unraveled the so-called comfort women uh, uh, agreement that, uh, that um, had been mm -hmm. struck between the Park and the Abe administrations for domestic political reasons. In other words, it was, it was a little bit of a, of a anyone but the previous president part, which we are familiar with, with Trump and Obama, um, but it was also uh, to curry domestic political favor. Uh, so I think that in terms of the immediate damage to Japan-South Korea relations, I think most of the, the responsibility should go on the Moon Jae-in administration. I would add one more nail in that coffin, which is the South Koreans threatening to pull out of the trilateral U.S.-Japanese-South Korean intelligence sharing arrangement, which benefits no one but China. I take that back. It benefits North Korea as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I think it's a bit of a, of a, of a, of a mess, though, that, that whole set of relationships. 
Meanwhile, you have the Trump administration demanding a five-fold increase in the uh, contribution for uh, South Korean contribution for financial contribution for the bases, and yet there it is, Camp Humphreys in South Korea is the largest, is it the largest American base overseas? It's certainly one of the most expensive recent developments. You can't imagine them with being withdrawn. Um, so let's do the counterfactual. Uh, President Trump persists in the demand of a five-fold increase. I saw a poll of South Korean public attitudes. 98% of South Koreans oppose uh, any significant change to their current burden-sharing arrangement with the United States. Um, President Trump elects to withdraw troops from South Korea. The Congress has already passed legislation uh, denying the president any funds to do that. But the president has demonstrated with deployment of troops and diversion of Department of Defense funds for the border wall that, um, that he doesn't believe Congress has the right to deny him uh, funds even if they were not authorized or appropriated for that purpose. Um, if you're Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping, aren't you just turning cartwheels at the United States making a choice that damaging to its own interests? Absolutely. No, I think it's been a great year for both uh, President Xi Jinping and uh, Vladimir, President Putin in this regard, in terms of the American choices and the, and the way in which America has been uh, damaging the, its partners, its allies' sense of confidence in its own actions and in the durability of its commitments. Yeah. Uh, now, meanwhile, President Xi Jinping hasn't had it all his own way in Hong Kong. So let's not pretend that, as it were, it's all going one way and, and all going against America. Um, I think that uh, while President Putin probably is fairly immune to most, most ac uh, ac actions by others at present, I think President Xi Jinping actually has had a mixed year uh, in 2019. He's next year, do you think he is more vulnerable to public concern than Vladimir Putin is? What would be the difference between those two authoritarians' level of insulation from public dissatisfaction? My, so I believe there is a difference. I actually think it will be much harder for the Russian public to, after this much time of Vladimir Putin and the seedy oligarch mafia around him that have taken control and terror effectively terrorized the country. I have the sense that China being so much bigger, so much more diverse, I once had a Chinese counterpart tell me that um, you know, they couldn't believe China and the U.S. weren't getting along because we were so similar. We were both really diverse societies that distrusted our government. <laughs> and where the central government doesn't have nearly as much control as everybody thinks it does. Is that a, a snapshot of Xi Jinping's position that, that you would endorse? What's the difference, do you think, between the hold Vladimir Putin has and the hold Xi Jinping has on their respective states? I think uh, the distinction you've made, you've, you've made is, is absolutely right. I think that, that if, you, if, if one says, what's the hold of the Ch Communist Party of China on power in China, the answer is it's very, very strong. If you ask the question, what's the hold of President Xi Jinping on the Communist Party in China, I'd say it's vulnerable. So I think that's the difference, that he's replaceable, mm. um, that circumstances could arise in which basically 
in the bureaucratic system that is the Communist Party of China, he could be considered to have passed his usefulness. Yes. In the case of President Putin, that is not, as you said, the case. He is part of a system that uh, the whole system would fall if he falls. One day that'll happen, but we're away from it now. It's a very interesting distinction. So you've done a lot of work about and in Japan. And since it's such a central subject to this institution, I'd, I'd love uh, your thoughts about how Japan is navigating the corrosion of the liberal international order. My sense is that Japan has made, over the last 15 years, more interesting strategic choices than any other country. Some of them good, some of them worrisome. I'd love to hear your tally. Well, I think one way I look at uh, Japan, because I, I have been writing about it for longer than I care to admit to myself, I guess more than 35 years, perhaps even a bit longer these now. One balance I look at, is Japan being more international or less international? Is it more open or is it more closed? And I think there's an important distinction between the Japanese government and Japan, that the Japanese government, particularly under the Abe administration, has become much more international, hmm. much more active, much more outward reaching, uh, and therefore has taken a number of initiatives uh, that I think have, have, have been very different from those that it would have been taken by previous governments hmm. um, that take Japan beyond the U.S.-Japan very binary uh, relationship that previous administrations had relied upon. Meanwhile, however, the Japanese, Japanese society, the Japanese public, and even corporate Japan has probably become either no more international or possibly less international um, over recent decades. Uh, fewer hmm. Japanese students traveling overseas, Less, some less interest in international affairs, mm. some more kind of turning in on itself. So my question about the future of Japan, uh, um, and in some ways the, the, the sustainability of some of the choices that Japan has, the Japanese government has made, is about the contrast between these two positions. Interesting. Um, now, I think, that why has the Abe administration done this? Well, one is because Prime Minister Abe himself has been in government for so long, which gives a strength to the Prime Minister's office and to the executive function yeah. that ha hadn't hitherto been the case. So mm -hmm. he is peculiar in that sense. But secondly, I think that particularly under Trump, but I suspect also probably uh, before under Obama with the sense of the way Obama's foreign policy was going, I think there has been a realization that while Japan will never want to detach itself from the United States in any foreseeable circumstances, it definitely needs to be a, a, a United States plus country. Um, hence the EU-Japan Economic Partnership Agreement, hence TPP plus, the Trans-Pacific Partnership being, you know, being revived under Japanese and Australian leadership. Yeah, being brought into effect without American participation. Absolutely. Uh, hence, to some degree, some of the reshaping of the forces towards some greater power projection and some greater maybe power, power intimidation capability in with the use of helicopter carriers and so forth, now being sent to Somalia and, and Absolutely. so Absolutely. The, the genius of the Japanese government in 
trying to make a discussion about Japan's past less relevant by in some ways doing what Chancellor Merkel did, which is to say, here's who we are in the present and making big symbolic statements, um, contributing to multilateral forces, inching their way towards it, right? Why, uh, I think, uh, didn't they have water purifiers in Iraq and refueling ships for Afghanistan? slowly, gently moving towards a much more normalized um, participation internationally and being rewarded for that participation as a way of dampening down a conversation about the past. Um, Ab absolutely, and meanwhile, they are investing in infrastructure. They're just not calling it something like the Belt and Road Initiative. <laughs> they are trying to say, actually, look, we can be more quiet about this, and by the way, we don't make you heavily indebted to us while we're doing it. And the partnership with India. Exactly. And making transparency and standards a for a competing vision. I think it's incredibly smart. And by doing it in partnership, it inoculates the Japanese government against reactions like the South Koreans have fomented domestically. Yeah, so I think it, it has been a series of mainly smart moves uh, that probably will be sustained by future administrations, but the question about Jap public opinion and how relatively un-international it has become just gives me a little pause on that. I would be much happier if simultaneously the country was investing in, let's say, sending, sending all students overseas for at least one year of their studies and, uh, and get yeah. engaging much more in, uh, as it were, soft dip um, public diplomacy programs of that nature to try to build for the future that sense of, um, of uh, durability of, of, of the country's uh, decision-making. It's a really good point. I saw a statistic not long ago about immigration to Japan. Uh, I don't think of Japan as an immigrant country. I think of it as a place with quite a strong ethnocentric culture. Um, and yet the graying of the Japanese population it has caused um, the need for caregivers, in particular from the Philippines and other parts of the Asian neighborhood. And I was surprised at the extent to which that's been accepted by the Japanese public. That seems to me a big cultural change. And I'd love to give your th get your thoughts on kind of domestically how is Japan changing, especially since you have done such interesting work on gender issues and the role of women in Japan. What do we not see that's changing in Japan um, that perhaps we should be paying closer attention to? Well, someone um, I know, an American economist who was uh, an advisor to, uh, contributed to an advisory commission many years ago to a Japanese government, said to them quite memorably, look, for your sustainability, you can be either racist or you can be sexist, but you can't be both because it's not sustainable <laughs> demographically. So the question is, are they, is that changing? Now, my belief is that although on the surface um, there are some more immigrants from a very low base, there's some opening up to particularly uh, particular um, occupations um, of some of the immigration rules, they're still pretty small numbers. Mm. Uh, and they're, it's gone maybe from terms of the percentage of population, it's gone from close to zero to, to two, just over 2% of the population is foreign-born. In Britain, it's 14% are foreign-born. 
you know, mm. th 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 there's a long way to go. Now, these yeah. things can change fast, but I, I don't feel that there is the, the, the strong acceptance of, of immigration in Japan. But on the case of gender equality and female role, I think actually the groundwork is being made and has been made for quite a big change. It's been made mainly by a revolution in education during the 1990s and 2000s really? when from a huge gender gap in tertiary education where most uh, high school girls went to two-year so-called junior colleges to therefore be stamped second or third rate for the rest of their lives professionally. There's basically, they've switched to four-year proper university courses. The gender gap is, is tiny. Uh, and coming through the system, if you like, is a pipeline mm. of uh, ambitious, new, uh, like fully capable um, uh, professional women. Uh, now, the, there is a question as to how well Japanese organizations embrace this uh, and accommodate it through their human resources policies and their thinking and so forth. And there's quite a way to go before it ceases to be highly misogynistic and sexist. But I think it'll change because of demographic reasons, because there's such a supply push, mm. and because I think that the number of examples of, of things working is just going to accumulate. Mm. So I would say, is Japan going to be racist or sexist in <laughs> 20 years' time? I'd say they'll still be racist, but they'll be a lot less sexist. Let us close this conversation with Europe, my friend. Um, this It would seem that the um, expectations of Europe as an emergent superpower in the 1990s, right? Like the United States fought so often about the role of the EU and uh, worried that EU that the Europeans were going to become the global standard setters. I find myself homesick for that concern. Um, closing thoughts on Europe? Well, I think that 2019 has been um, a disappointing year for Europe in two senses. One is that the U.S. has turned clearly hostile to the European Union under the Trump administration, which we never believed would be the case before. We always thought that the U.S. might not think much of us, might think we were doing good or doing ill, but they were basically in favor of the development of the European project of the European Union. That has been clearly disproven by this administration, at least. That's been a disappointment. Probably we can live with it um, because we'll hope to convince future administrations that they're wrong. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, Brexit is rumbling its way through its gro groundhog day of madness that uh, continually comes, comes at us. But the more important disappointment is that we haven't had yet the change of government in Germany that we need if we're to know the future of Europe or mm. to have a sense of confidence in the future of Europe. Mm. Chancellor Merkel has been a historically great chancellor has been a very notable uh, stabilizing force in Europe, but she's been in the role far too long, and basically all the political underpinnings around her have crumbled, which has left Germany paralyzed. So we see lots of activity from President Macron, lots of input into European thinking from President Macron, but he's not, France isn't as strong and as, as central a country to Europe as Germany is. He hasn't had his counterpart across the Rhine, the other European countries haven't had really uh, uh, a, a sort of some lodestones around which to either agree or disagree. Mm -hmm. So the whole project feels a bit adrift um, as a result of the lack of change in Germany. Uh, and so my hope for 2020 
is that we see a new Germany emerge. And then we can start adding up the question of what, what heft can Europe really play in the world? Uh, what sort of vision can be, can be defined for, for, for Europe um, in a difficult world, in an, and it's a difficult Europe? Bill Emmett, thank you so much for this rich conversation and for your leadership of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Thank you very much. It's a privilege and an honor to be part of it. Thank you.